we commit our time to you now. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Have you guys been watching Caitlin Clark and the Iowa Hawkeyes? <laughs> uh, they are on quite a run right now, and it's fun because the whole country is talking about Caitlin Clark and the Iowa Hawkeyes. Someone posted this last night. I thought it was pretty good. Uh, it says, breaking, Caitlin Clark has been named the starting quarterback for Iowa, Iowa Hawkeyes. And, and uh, this, I like this because Caitlin Clark has scored 235 points in the NCAA tournament, and the Iowa Hawkeye football team scored 230 points all last season. So they need a new quarterback, and that is Caitlin Clark. But it, it, is, it is fun to see what's happening in the world of sports. Uh, part of what makes March Madness so fun is the unpredictable nature of the tournament. And this is because, as human beings, it's very difficult for us to predict the future. Only God knows the future, and therefore only God can predict the future accurately. And as you read the scriptures, you will discover that there are over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament about the Messiah, about Jesus, that Jesus fulfilled throughout his lifetime. And on one single day, the day that Jesus died on the cross for the sins of the world, he fulfilled 27 prophecies, which is incredible to think about. And one of those predictions is not only that Jesus would die, not only that the Messiah would die, but how the Messiah would die. Psalm 22:16 says, For dogs have surrounded me, a gang of evildoers has closed in on me. They pierced my hands and my feet. This is a remarkable prediction made 1,000 years before Jesus lived. It is an incredible thing to think about, the, the power of God to predict what would happen to the Son of God. And it's remarkable for at least two reasons. First, is that Psalm 22 predicts how Jesus would die 1,000 years before Jesus lived. Psalm 22 was written by David, by King David, around the year 1000 BC. And verse 16 clearly indicates how Jesus would die. He says, they have pierced my hands and my feet. On top of this, we're given the context in which Jesus would die. He says, for dogs have surrounded me. A gang of evildoers has closed in on me. This is a description of the cross of Christ. The second reason this is remarkable is because Psalm 22 was written 400 years before crucifixion was invented. Crucifixion was invented in the 6th century BC by the Babylonians. So 600 years before Jesus lived, and 400 years after Jesus, or after David, wrote Psalm 22. So during David's lifetime, there wasn't a common way for people to die by being crucified or having their hands pierced and their feet pierced. And so David predicts, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, how the Messiah, how the greater David, would die by having his hands and feet pierced. And this is just one of 300 prophecies made in the Old Testament that Jesus Christ fulfilled. And I say this to remind us that as we study Luke 23, we are observing two realities at the same time. Reality number one is that we are watching the greatest injustice the world has ever known. It is horrific what happens to Jesus, the way that Jesus is treated. And at the same time, we're looking at another reality. We are watching the unfolding of God's eternal plan to, to redeem the world through his son. We are watching God save us. The plan of God unfolding to redeem sinful people through his son, Jesus Christ. Only God can predict the future with perfect accuracy. And this is what we are looking at in the scriptures. Now this morning there are two scenes that I want to draw your attention to. The first is the king on the cross. And the second is the criminal on the cross. The king on the cross and then the criminal on the cross. Let's start with the king on the cross. 
the king on the cross. And there are three truths I would like you to notice. First, it's that Jesus experienced agony at the cross. Jesus experienced agony at the cross. Verse 32, two others, criminals, were also led away to be executed with him. When they arrived at the place called the skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on the right and one on the left. It is stunning to me the lack of detail you find in these verses regarding the crucifixion of Jesus. Luke only uses four words in verse 33. They crucified him there. Four words to describe the death of Jesus Christ that has changed the fabric of reality forever. Now, why only four, four words? Why are we only given four words? Well, this is likely because the ancient world did not need any more information than this. They understood crucifixion. They knew the horror of the cross, that after you reached Golgotha, the place of the skull, after you had been flogged, after you were bleeding profusely, they started the crucifixion process. And they began this process by forcing you on the cross. And then they dislocated one or both of your shoulders. And then they pounded six-inch metal spikes into your wrist, hitting your ulnar nerve. Have you ever hit your funny bone before? I'm sure you have. That is not a pleasant experience. And your ulnar nerve in your arm is connected to your funny bone. One doctor at the Mayo Clinic said, having a spike in your wrist would be like someone squeezing your funny bone with a pair of pliers. Then they hammered a six-inch spike into your feet, your feet one on top of the other. And part of the horror of the cross is that pierced hands and pierced feet would not kill you quickly. The agony of the cross could go on hour after hour after hour after hour. And once lifted up on the cross, once you were actually stood up on the cross, you couldn't breathe. The position of the cross made it so that your lungs could not expand. And so in order to breathe, you would have to push up with your pierced feet, take a breath, and then you would go back down hanging on your wrists. And it would go back and forth, hour after hour. There's a Latin term to describe the alternating agonies of the cross. There's not much said about the crucifixion, the physical pain that Jesus walked through. Nonetheless, we cannot miss the truth that Jesus experienced agony at the cross. Truth number two, Jesus despised the shame of the cross. So he experienced agony at the cross, and then he despised the shame of the cross. Not only was there outrageous physical pain, all four gospel accounts emphasize the shame that Jesus experienced. Verse 35, the people stood watching, and even the leaders were scoffing. He saved others. Let him save himself, that this is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also mocked. They came offering him sour wine and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. An inscription was above him, this is the king of the Jews. According to Matthew and Mark, both criminals, the one on the right and on the left, they were taunting and insulting Jesus. Everyone in the story mocked him. Everyone condemned him. Everyone insulted him. The crowds were condemning him. The soldiers were condemning him. The Jewish leaders were condemning him. Herod and Pilate were making fun of him and condemning him. We're told in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, that Jesus despised the shame of the cross, which means he hated the shame of the cross. He was not immune to shame. He felt the power of shame. We will do almost anything to avoid being shamed. We will do almost anything to avoid the embarrassment of public condemnation. I mean, why do we lie? Why do we tell lies? We lie to avoid looking bad most of the time. We, we don't like 
the idea of people looking at us and thinking low of us because we crave the approval of others. We crave the approval of the world. This is how we've been created by God. We, we want people to like us. We are relational creatures and we want people to like us. But that craving, that desire to be liked, to be known, to be approved of, has a sinful twist built into it. I remember a few years ago, I was helping with a baseball practice for one of my sons. And after the practice, my son, uh, he came up to me and he said, hey dad, um, can we give my teammate a ride home? And I said, sure. There was some confusion about who was giving who rides, and so this boy needed rides. So he got in our van, and I was taking him home. These boys were nine or ten years old at the time. And so this boy, he said, hey, I need to call my mom to let her know I have a ride. So he calls his mom. I'm not even paying attention to what uh, he's saying at all. But as he started talking, he said a few things that caught my ear. Then he said this. He said, yeah, he was speaking. He says, yeah, yeah, he's like 40 or 50 years old. And from the conversation, I realized he was talking about me. And I thought, you thought I'm, you think I'm 50 years old? I mean, what's wrong with you, buddy? Do you want to see how many push-ups I can do? I mean, I can do like 10 push-ups in a row without taking a break. And I don't know why, but that little comment, he's like 40 or 50 years old, it just bothered me for a little while. I'm like, what in the world? And for the next week, I kept finding myself looking at myself in the mirror. Like, what's wrong? Why do I, do I look 50? Do I need Botox or what's happening here? I mean, why? And then I thought, why do I care about what this little boy said? And it's because we are hardwired for the approval of others. And we don't crave the approval of literally everyone. But there are some people, at least some people, that you crave their approval. You want to be accepted. You want to be welcomed. You want to be looked at. And people say, good job. Good work. You're fine. You're doing good. That's what we want. And this desire, this craving, makes shame a powerful weapon. The fear of shame makes us do crazy things. It makes us think crazy thoughts. This is why Jesus says that if you're ashamed of me, if you're ashamed of my word, if you're ashamed of my gospel, if you're ashamed of the cross, you cannot follow me. The price of following Christ is that we must count the cost. Are we willing to suffer the shame that Jesus experienced? Now, what do we do with this shame when we experience it? Well, Jesus despised it. He hated it. He did not hate the people. He hated the shame. He was aware of the shame. He saw the danger of shame. And he did not allow himself to give in to the pressure of the shame. Jesus went to the cross in obedience to his father, even though it meant the whole world would turn against him. The whole world would condemn him. The whole world would mock him. He went to the cross in obedience to his father, not to please the world. And if we're gonna walk like Christ, if we're gonna live like Christ, we must despise the shame. We must identify the power of shame and we must not give in to the shame that the world will put on you. Truth number three, Jesus gave grace at the cross. He gave grace at the cross. He suffered agony, he despised the shame, and he gave grace at the cross. The contrast could not be more clear. The crowd is sneering at Jesus. They're hating Jesus, mocking Jesus. I mean, how much do you have to hate someone to mock them in their agony? How much do you have to despise another human being to insult them when they're suffering? And here Jesus is at, he's at the height of his suffering in the crowds, people walking by, the Jewish leaders, the Roman soldiers are mocking him, insulting him, taunting him. But what does Jesus do? 
He responds by giving grace. He offers grace towards his enemies. Wine mixed with myrrh is a narcotic. It's a painkiller. And before someone was nailed to the cross, the Romans offered this narcotic, not because they were merciful, but because it was a negotiating peace. Often when people arrived at Golgotha, the reality of the cross took hold of them. They realized, I'm about to be nailed to the cross. And with whatever energy they had left, they would fight. They would fight, not hoping to get away. They knew they wouldn't get away. They were hoping that they would be run through with a sword or a spear and their death would be quick. They did not want to be nailed to a cross. And so wine mixed with myrrh was a negotiating piece. We will give you this painkiller if you get on the cross. Mark 15, 22. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. He was offered wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Why? Why did he not take it? Well, he came into the world for the cross. He came to die on the cross for the sins of the world. And see, Jesus willingly laid down his life. He offered his life as a sacrifice to God for the sins of the world. And so he willingly laid down. He willingly stretched out his hands. He willingly put his feet where they needed to go to be pierced. No fighting, no running, no coercion necessary. And even as they were nailing him to the cross, he had no rage in his heart towards people. Instead, he prayed for their forgiveness. Verse 34, then Jesus said, Father, forgive them because they do not know what they're doing. He is pleading, as he is suffering, he is pleading for their forgiveness. Jesus had a perfect relationship between what he preached and how he lived. He had perfect integrity, which meant he loved his enemies. He preached that you should love your enemies, that you should pray for those who persecute you, that you should do good towards those who injure you, for those who attack you, those who go after you, you should pursue their good. And Jesus loved his enemies all the way to the cross. He was not overcome by evil, but he overcame evil by doing good. And the testimony of his life had a powerful impact in the story. Everyone is mocking him. Everyone is taunting him. But by the end, one of the criminals on the cross woke up. He said, what in the world is going on? He saw who Jesus Christ is. This is the second scene, the criminal on the cross. Verse 32 tells tells us that Jesus was crucified in between two criminals. Both criminals began by mocking taunting, insulting Jesus. But by the end, one of the criminals became silent. No more taunting. No more insults. And by the end, he gives his life to Christ. He commits his life to Christ only moments away from his death. There is something about death, facing death, that brings clarity to the soul. When you think about the reality that your life will end someday, it brings clarity to the soul. And this criminal provides an example for us on how someone becomes a Christian. How do you become a Christian? Imagine if, if you had a friend, coworker, neighbor, child, spouse, whatever, doesn't matter, whoever. Imagine if someone asked you the question, how do you become a Christian? How is it that you become a Christian? What is your answer to that question? Well, the criminal on the cross answers that question for us. He has an example for us. He provides an example of how someone becomes a Christian. So what do we learn? Well, first... The criminal teaches us that you must fear God. 
You must fear God. Salvation begins with the fear of the Lord, with the fear of God. If you do not fear God, the cross will make no sense to you. Verse 39, then one of the criminals hanging there began to yell insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other answered, rebuking him. Don't you even fear God since you're undergoing the same punishment? See, the fear of the Lord began to take root in this man's heart. He began to understand, uh-oh, there's something else going on here than just three criminals dying. He, he began to understand, uh-oh, my life is coming to an end. Matthew 10, 28. Jesus says, and do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. The soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. This man knew he was about to face God in judgment and he was struck by the fear of the Lord. He said, I am in trouble. I am in trouble. And he realized that the other criminal had no fear of God. He's, he's acting as if there is no judgment. He's acting as if there, there is nothing on the other side of this life. But see, if there is no final judgment, then the cross of Christ will not be valuable to you. If there is no final accounting for your life, if there is no time when you stand in the presence of a holy God, then the, the cross is meaningless. It's insignificant. It doesn't accomplish anything. So many people reject the idea of final judgment, not, not for intellectual reasons, but for moral reasons. They don't want to think about the reality of final judgment. We ignore this reality, the reality of standing in the presence of a holy God. We ignore this reality because it's uncomfortable to our souls. But one day, dear friends, one day, you will die and stand in judgment before a holy God. And he will condemn people to hell forever or welcome people to heaven forever. Many people believe that, many people believe that everyone goes to heaven in the end or, in the end, or most people will go to heaven. But this is not true. The criminal was gripped by this reality. One day he will stand in judgment before God. So let me ask you, do you fear God? Do you believe there is coming a day of accounting that when your heart stops beating in your chest, you will wake up in the presence of God in judgment? Do you fear God? Salvation begins with the fear of God. Number two, you need to confess your guilt. Confess your guilt. Luke 23, 41, we are punished justly because we're getting back what we deserve for the things we did. This man is wrestling with his guilt on the cross and he reaches a conclusion. And it's a scary conclusion. It's a, it's a painful conclusion, but it's crystal clear. He reaches the conclusion, I am guilty. I am guilty before this holy God. I'm guilty before the Romans and if I'm guilty before the, before the sinful Romans, how much more guilty am I before a holy God? So what do we do with our guilt? Well, there are four common natural ways human beings will deal with their guilt. And these common natural ways we deal with our guilt, it actually traps us in our sin and keeps us from Christ. Feeling guilty can actually move us away from Christ and move us deeper into our sin. So how do we, how, what are these common ways that we deal with our guilt? Number one, minimize our guilt. We minimize our guilt. This is what we say. The gymnastics in our mind. I'm guilty, but so is everyone else. I'm guilty, and I'm not as bad as that guy. I'm not as bad as that girl. Okay, you're better than me. Okay, you're a little bit better than me. That's okay, but I'm a lot better than you. 
we minimize our guilt. We're hoping that God grades on a curve. And as long as I'm better than most people, then I'm okay with God. Number two, we hide our guilt. We hide it. We deny it. We hide it. We say, I'm guilty, but nobody knows about it. Why do people live two lives, a public life and a private life? What's going on there? Why not just be who you are in private? Well, it's because they want to avoid the reality of guilt. They want to avoid the reality of guilt. They want to hide the reality of guilt from other people. So I'm guilty, but no one knows about it. Number three, we excuse our guilt. We excuse our guilt. I'm guilty, but it's not my fault. It's someone else's fault. It's probably your fault, or it's your fault. Or I grew up with, in a dysfunctional home, or I didn't have all the opportunities that other people had, or I've had health problems, or I'm tired, or I'm stressed out in life. And so we either blame our situation in life, or we blame other people for our guilt. So we say, I'm guilty, but it's someone else's fault. We excuse our guilt. Number four, we justify our guilt. We justify our guilt. We say, I'm guilty, but I'm trying to be good. I'm guilty, but I go to church. I'm guilty, but I believe in God. I'm guilty, but I give my money away. I'm guilty, but I serve the, plor- serve the poor. We're trying to justify our guilt through our own religious practices. But see, all of these attempts to handle our guilt trap us in our sin. They do not free us. They trap us in our sin, and they keep us from Christ. It drives us further away from the Lord Jesus Christ. So how are we to deal with our guilt? How do we deal with our guilt? Well, first, you need to confess it to God. You need to confess it to God. No more justifying it. No more excusing it. No more hiding it. No more minimizing it. You confess it to God. How do you know someone is ready to become a Christian? It's when they stand guilty and condemned before a holy God with their mouth closed. They stand hopeless in themselves, hopeless in their own strength, hopeless in their own good works. They say, I'm guilty and condemned before a holy God. That is when someone is ready to meet Christ. This is when someone is ready for the grace of God. So number one, you must fear God. Number two, you must confess your guilt. And number three, you must put your trust in Christ alone. You must put your trust in Christ alone. The great irony of the story, I mean, this is wild to think about. The great irony of the story is that at this point, at this point, no one knows who Jesus is. No one sees who Jesus is. Remember, Judas betrays Jesus. Peter denies Jesus. The other disciples run away from Jesus. Herod mocks Jesus. Pilate condemns Jesus. The Roman, I'm sorry, the the Jewish leaders, they, they are hurling accusations at Jesus. The Roman soldiers are mocking Jesus. The other criminal on the cross is condemning Jesus. In the story at this point, there is one person who sees who Jesus Christ is, and it is a criminal, a murderer on the cross, someone who had stolen from other people. Stealing was not a capital, it was not, it was not punishable by the cross. So this man, he stole and he committed murder. He's the only one who sees who Christ is. And what does he see? Well, what he sees, what he sees is that Jesus is innocent. He sees that Jesus is innocent. I'm guilty, he's righteous. I'm guilty, he's righteous. He sees that Jesus is the king of an eternal kingdom. He says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. The man wasn't thinking, I'm gonna get down off the cross. 
and then we're gonna have this kingdom. That's not what he's thinking. He says, this guy on the cross is the king of an eternal kingdom. And then he understood how to get in. He understood how to get into the kingdom of God. How do you get into the kingdom of God? How are you made acceptable before God? See, religion says this, if I'm innocent, I may enter. If I'm innocent, if I'm righteous, I may enter the kingdom of God. If I'm guilty, I cannot enter. These are the rules according to religion. And if this was the case, then the emphasis would be on you. It would be on you cleaning up your life, getting your act together, being a good person. Stop being bad. Be good. But this is a false gospel. You will never be justified before God by your own moral effort. You cannot be good enough in your own strength. And so the gospel comes along and says this, I am guilty, so let me in. This is, the, this is the argument the thief is making. I am guilty. I am worthy of death. I'm worthy of punishment, so let me in. I have nothing, so let me in. I'm naked, so let me in. Now, how does Jesus respond? Does he say, how dare you? How dare you say, let me in to your kingdom. Remember me in your kingdom when you're a murderer. Is that what he says? Does Jesus condemn the man? Does he say to the man, hey, you need to, this, go back in time, you need to get baptized and you, you need to learn about the doctrine of justification by grace alone. Is that what he does? Is he, okay, you need to make restitution with the people you stole from. Is that what he says? No, no. Look at Jesus' response. It's one of the, it's, it is one of the great promises in all the Bible. Verse 43. And he said to him, truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Today. Truly, why does he say truly? Because it would have been so difficult for this criminal on the cross to believe that today he would be in the kingdom of God. This man on the cross next to Jesus had lived a life of sin and rebellion against God. He had disregarded the law of God. He was a Jewish man who did not fear God or love God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. He was probably a revolutionary along with Barabbas. He had committed murder and taken that which does not belong to him. And now he has been found guilty by the Romans. And in his last moments, he turns to this guy on the cross. And Jesus says, truly, I tell you, today you'll be with me. Today you will be with me. And this is how Jesus saves people in a moment. In a moment. When people turn to Christ, they are saved in a moment forever. Now, you may have the question in the back of your mind. How can Jesus let a murderer into his kingdom? How can Jesus let a guilty man into his kingdom? If, if the thief says, I'm guilty, therefore let me in, is, does Jesus not care about sin? Certainly not. Well, in order to understand how Jesus lets murderers into his kingdom and to understand how Jesus lets you into his kingdom, you have to understand where God the Father is at in the story. Where is God the Father at in the story? Remember, Jesus is the Son of God. And remember, he is suffering the worst injustice of all time. And if Jesus were your son and you were his father, how would you respond to the way he's being treated? Would you allow it? Would you put up with it? Would you be okay with your son being mocked and tortured even though he's innocent? Would you put up with it? You know, this last winter, my family and I, we went to a Valley basketball game, and uh, my daughter, Myla, uh, 
she was walking into the basketball game, and she was maybe 10 feet, 15 feet in front of me, and we're walking in, and she's walking in. I'm not thinking anything of it, but then I noticed there were probably five or six middle school boys off to the side, and they're poking each other, being middle school boys, and as Myla walks in, they stopped poking each other, and they all just looked at her. They're all looking at her. And the moment that happened, the spirit of Liam Neeson took hold of me. <laughs> and I killed those boys. I, I, was, I was merciful. It was quick. It was, but I killed them. And um, let that be a lesson to you middle school boys. I just, I just want to let you know. <laughs> but is that wrong for me to be protective? Dads, let me ask you a question. Is it wrong to protect your kids? Okay, then where's God the Father? Where is God the Father? Surely he will show up. And he does. In verse 44, it was now about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three. Now, in in the Old Testament, when God shows up in judgment, he shows up in darkness. Not every time, but often he shows up in darkness. So we know from this passage, God the Father is showing up in judgment. He's showing up in darkness. He's showing up in judgment. And see, the question we need to answer is, who will he judge? Who is he going to judge? Will he judge the crowd who's mocking him? Will he judge the Roman soldiers who have tortured him? Will he judge Herod and Pilate? Will he judge the people walking by? Who does he judge when he shows up? Well, here's the glory of the gospel that when God the Father shows up to judge, he doesn't judge any of them. He shows up to punish his own son. He shows up to judge his own son, his one and only son. Why? What has he done wrong? What evil has this man committed? Read Luke 23. He's innocent. Everyone knows he's innocent. So why would God the Father punish his innocent son? for you because you're guilty you're worthy of death you ought to be condemned for what you have done this is why Jesus can look at the criminal on the cross and say today you will be with me in paradise because the Lord Jesus Christ is dying in place of this criminal he is paying the full wrath of God's punishment in the place of sinners even though he is spotless, righteous, pure, perfect in every way. He took into himself the wrath of God. And when he reached the end, he says, it is finished. What is finished? The punishment, God's punishment for sin was completed in his son, Jesus Christ. See, the Jewish leaders, they looked at Jesus and they said, he can't be the Messiah. Why? Because in the book of Leviticus, it says, cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. And they say, look, he can't be the Messiah because he's cursed of God. But what they didn't understand is that Jesus was cursed for us. You deserve to be cursed by God, but Christ was cursed on our behalf. They mocked him, saying, He saved others, but he cannot save himself. They did not see that he didn't save himself so he could save others. 
So the Lord Jesus willingly dies that he might save us. Jesus hung naked so we could be clothed with his righteousness. He bore the shame that we deserve so we could be honored. Do you know what our future is as Christians? Glory. Eternal glory and the presence of God forever. Why? Because Christ bore our shame. See, Jesus lit or died so that we might live. So to close, I want to ask you a question. Here's the question. When you see Christ on the cross, what do you see? Do you see a good teacher, a good moral example, who through a series of tragic events died a terrible death? Or do you see a sovereign savior who lived for you and died for you and rose for you? What do you see? See, Christians look at Christ and they say, there's my hope. There's my salvation. There's my forgiveness. There's my life. So if you're not a Christian, this morning I would encourage you to give your life to Christ. To come like the criminal on the cross, fearing God, understanding your guilt, and putting your trust completely in Christ. And if you're not a Christian, I would encourage you to marvel at the love of God. Charles Wesley, he wrote a great hymn. He says, amazing love, how can it be that you, my king, would die for me? For me. It is the king of kings who died for criminals like us. Let's pray.